Welcome to Fertility and Sterility On Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS On Air is brought to you by the Fertility and Sterility family of journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, new media and video editor, Dr. Eve Feinberg, associate editor, and Dr. Micah Hill, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Well, hello, Micah and Eve. Welcome to another Fertility and Sterility on Air. Today, we're going to talk about the table of contents from the January issue. That happens to be volume 115, number one, if you care. Um, So, happy new year, at least on a podcast, even though we're not finished with this one. Thanks, Kurt. Good morning. Good morning, Micah. Happy new year and happy second day of the Pfizer vaccine being rolled out. Good morning, even Kurt. Glad to be back here and glad to be in 2021. So this is a, a jam-packed fertility and sterility. We're going to start with some of the ASRM and views and reviews pages, and then we'll dive into the original research. So I think the views and reviews, Eve, you took on, but that was quite an undertaking, wasn't it? I did. This is actually a really good section. It's quite meaty. I'm going to summarize it, but I would really encourage our listeners to go back and read these sections. And if you don't have the bandwidth to read them now, they're definitely ones that you should tuck away for the future. I think that these articles are particularly relevant for some of our younger members who are just beginning in practice. The need for business in reproductive medicine is really important for all. And I would argue that this holds true whether you are in a private or an academic practice. We all need a better understanding of the multiple components that contribute to running a practice. This this month's Views and Reviews is like Cliff Notes for Business School, a group of fantastic articles that addresses the various areas that physicians should be focusing on to enhance our business acumen. The first piece is financial fluency, demystifying accounting and business planning for the reproductive medicine specialty by Mindy Christensen with senior author Ricardo Aziz. The manuscript teaches us about the basic principles of business and accounting, such as the balance sheet, understanding liquidity and solvency, income statements, budgeting, creating a business plan. And I think this was a really helpful piece. And again, especially for those who are just starting out in their practices. The next piece is practice management, managing many for the care of one by Priyanka Gosh with senior author Joe Sanfilippo. They describe an overview of medical practice management divided into six sections and with inclusion of principles, particularly related to the COVID-19 pandemic. These sections are broken down into practice models, operations, patient safety, patient experience, employee recruitment and engagement, and technology. The next article, Billing, Coding, and Practice Management, a Primer for Today's Reproductive Medicine Professionals by Bala Bagabeth. Linnea Goodman and John Petroza was a really informative piece that provides the REI physician with explanations of billing coding, cost containment, revenue cycles, and contract negotiation with insurance companies. All of these have a focus on increasing profitability. Truly a must read. And the final piece in this series is titled Fertility, a Human Right Worthy of Mandated Insurance Coverage the evolution, limitations, and future access to care by Jen Kawas, Alan Penzias, and Elia Dashi. This is a powerful piece and a call to action for more patient, 
position and legislative access in the name of reproductive justice to expand insurance coverage, to break down barriers in access to care, and to maximize reproductive outcomes. So overall, a fantastic section that I highly recommend going back and reading. Thanks, Eve. These aren't exactly opinion pieces, but they certainly sound like a resource to some. To some so that would be terrific. But we do have a, the true opinion piece this month in Fertilians, really, and as you know, they're called inklings. Micah, what was this month's inkling? Yeah, thank you, Kurt. So the inkling actually continues the theme that Eve was talking about. This was from Ghosh and colleagues at McGee Women's Hospital, and they continue the theme of business and REI, but specifically talking about how we teach it to our trainees. In the Inklings piece titled, The Times Are A-Changing, Isn't It Time to Expand the Trainee Curriculum? So they discuss how the field of REI is very good at training individuals to learn the medicine of REI, but we could do a better job at teaching the business of REI medicine. And REI clinics have a wide range of financial models for compensation based upon academic versus private practice or a mixture or based upon insurance coverage in their states. And so they note that we do have the opportunity to use platforms such as ASRM, the SREI Fellows Symposium, the SRS Surgical Boot Camp to potentially implement broad uh, financial training to our fellows. Finally, they conclude that, quote, the changing landscape of medicine necessitates additional guidance and training to ensure fellows start their professions with all the skills needed to be not only competent, but also well-informed physicians who understand the business climate and when they practice. Uh, so, Eve, you know, I know you started off in academic medicine and then you moved to private practice and now you're back in academic and you're training our fellows. So how do you feel that we should be teaching this to fellows? I think it's a really important thing that everybody needs to understand. And I think, unfortunately for me, it was something that I learned on the job. And really only once I became a full equity partner in a private practice did I really start to understand these concepts. And so I'm really going to take this to heart and try to incorporate more training in this arena in our own fellowship program at Northwestern. Yeah, I've been the more academic person, staying in academics all my life, but, but I, I'll echo that business certainly is important. We can't practice medicine without keeping our offices open. But we also can't practice medicine without good guidelines from our medical society. So let's transition over to the ASRM pages. I think there's a couple guidelines from the AUA. Yeah, so this next set of guidelines are Diagnosis and Treatment of Infertility in Men and their Joint AUA-ASRM Guidelines, Part 1 and Part 2. It's a two-part guideline statement that was published both in the January issue of FNS as well as the Journal of Urology. Part one outlines the evaluation of the male and the infertile couple. The guideline provides updated evidence-based recommendations regarding evaluation of male infertility as well as the development of subsequent health problems for men. The evaluation and treatment recommendations are summarized in an algorithm presented in the document. I'm gonna summarize some of the highlights. Males and females who have infertility should be treated as a dyad with careful attention to both partners and not just focusing on the female. Reproductive history should be taken for both partners and a semen analysis should be performed. If there is at least one abnormal parameter on the semen analysis, the male should have a complete evaluation, including a physical exam. The workup then is stratified by normosospermia or azospermia, and if azospermia is detected, then FSH and exam is warranted to help the distinction between obstructive and non-obstructive causes. 
For patients who have severe azospermia or severe oligospermia, they should have a karyotype and Y microdeletion testing. And for patients with less severe oligospermia, further evaluation with FSH and testosterone should be performed and possibly medically treated to optimize outcome. Some other key points that the document brings up are as follows. Men with advanced paternal age greater than 40 should be counseled regarding an increased risk of adverse health outcomes for their offspring. Men with higher rates of abnormal semen parameters have higher rates of testicular cancer, and men with azospermia have higher rates of cancer in general than fertile men. And for couples with recurrent pregnancy loss, men should have a karyotype and sperm DNA fragmentation testing. Part two of the guideline outlines the appropriate management strategy for the male in the infertile couple. Medical therapies, surgery, the use of IUI, IVF, and ICSI are covered in this document and are all worked into that algorithm outlined in part one. The highlights of this document include a discussion on varicoceles and discussion of when to offer surgery, sperm retrieval techniques, obstructive azospermia, including post-vasectomy infertility, and discussion on when to offer anastomosis. Medical and nutraceutical interventions for fertility, including discussion on aromatase inhibitor, germs, avoidance of testosterone, and proper supplement use. Finally, gonadotoxic therapies, including the recommendation to avoid pregnancy for one year after completion of treatment. And men who are azospermic after gonadotoxic therapy can consider TESI as a treatment option. This document also discusses sperm banking with a recommendation for any couple to bank multiple specimens. So overall, quite a comprehensive document, and it makes a really strong argument for a partnership with a reproductive urologist in conjunction with a reproductive endocrinologist. I see. That sounded really comprehensive. I'm going to have to review that a little bit. I didn't know DNA fragmentation was part of my everyday practice. Definitely controversial, but it did find its way into the recommendations. Okay, so before we get into the original articles, which are divided into a really comprehensive group this month, we have assisted reproduction, early pregnancy, endometriosis, epidemiology, fertility preservation, and even a lot more. But we still have one more um, history piece, which Mike, I think, is going to tell us about. Thank you, Kurt. So Fertility and Sterility has been looking at articles that were published 50 years ago as we celebrate this landmark for the journal. And this month, Martin Catherines from Brigham and Women's Hospital uh, writes an article entitled, Back to the Basic Science of Fertility. So 50 years ago, the January edition of Fertility and Sterility contained three basic science studies. And these looked at the effects of x-rays on testicular vascularization, the impact of temperature shock on sperm production, and how citric acid concentration affected sperm freezing. And he notes that, quote, these articles harken back to a time when our clinical journal of record regularly highlighted articles focusing on fundamental research. One never knows the next clinical advancements will germinate, uh, even if it is necessary to relearn a few forgotten college subjects in order to approach them. While I don't share quite his bleak outlook on the basic science publications in the journal, I do think that this commentary is very timely uh, given the recent launch of our sister journal, FNS Science, as a platform to publish exactly these sort of basic science laboratory research studies on the shoulders of which clinical medicine uh, will stand in the future. 
Thanks, Mike. And now we're going to move on to reviewing the original articles in the journal. And the first article that I'm going to review was entitled The Seminal Contribution. And I think we're going to be talking about this article for a while. It's going to introduce some new debates and uh, I'm sure will be very, very highly referenced. So the title of this article is The Rate of True Recurrent Implantation Failure is Low, Results of Three Successive Frozen Single Embryo Transfers. It's out of the IVRMA New Jersey group with Paul Pertia as the first author and Richard Scott as the senior author. So as clinicians and certainly as patients, we have enjoyed a dramatic increase in pregnancy after in vitro fertilization in the last decade or so. However, while IVF is capable of overcoming many factors and is clearly our go-to treatment, in some patients it's just not successful enough. There seems to be a group of women who, despite performing well with IVF surrogate markers, such as the number of eggs or the number of good quality embryos, still do not get pregnant despite multiple transfers. This is a hard concept to accept for clinicians and especially for our patients, and some have labeled this group of women as having, quote, recurrent implantation failure. Thus, we have focused our attention on the endometrium as perhaps a very key part to this puzzle. There's been a large amount of research assessing the endometrium, endometrial synchrony, implantation window, as well as other factors that, that are specific to the hypothesized link to normal or altered implantation, such as immunity or inflammation or even endometriosis. However, when you look at these articles really critically, implantation failure is really not well-defined, and some definitions are really, really out of date. So to address this issue, this paper attempts to assess the cumulative pregnancy outcomes after three successful frozen euploid single embryo transfers to see if a definition of recurrent implantation failure can be defined and therefore we can address it more succinctly. I.e., can we take genetics out of the equation and only look at implantation failure after putting back a normal embryo? So this study was a single practice included all patients that met inclusion criteria of up to three single embryo transfers of a euploid embryo. Of note, the subsequent embryos that transferred could come from the same cycle or actually could be from different cycles. So please refer to the paper for the specifics regarding the simulation techniques, the embryogenetic testings, and the endometrial preparation. But I will note that these were all program cycles and mosaic embryos were not transferred. Overall, this is a group of patients that had very good prognosis based on the demographics. They had, for example, 10 and a half pronuclei on average and three and a half euploid blastocysts from their first retrieval. Despite that, the main findings of the study are really important. Sustained pregnancy rates with each frozen transfer are all very high and very stable. So roughly 70% had a sustained pregnancy after the first transfer, and 60 had a sustained pregnancy after the second and also after the third. So cumulatively, after three transfers, the sustained pregnancy rate was over 95% in these women. So comparisons showed that the second and third transfers were similar in success, although a little bit lower than the first. So when the data was looked at as live birth rate as an outcome, also had a relatively similar high success rates with more than or approximately 93% of people getting pregnant. There was also no difference in miscarriages among the three transfers. So there are a number of interesting discussion points in this paper. First of all, the success rates are outstanding. Based on these wonderful success rates though, the authors suggest that perhaps there is no such thing as recurrent pregnancy implantation failure calling into question many of the hypotheses, diagnostic tests, and therapies that have been suggested in the literature. Perhaps the only real issue, as the authors say, is finding a normal euploid embryo, and we don't have to test anything else. So this is a very interesting paper. Of course, there's some weaknesses, such as retrospective design and the descriptive nature. 
There are patients that dropped out from the study that were not included in the cumulative pregnancy rate because they had no further embryos to transfer. I'm also not confident that all practices can replicate these very high pregnancy rates. However, the suggestion that there is no such thing as recurrent implantation failure and that all that is needed is to find a good embryo and we should stop looking at the endometrium certainly provokes some debate. As described by the accompanying reflection from the reproductive medicine group out of, of the College of Wisconsin, they also say this is thought-provoking. If pregnancy rates are so high in the second or third transfer, any intervention that we throw at somebody might be hypothesized to work just by because of regression to the mean. They have a high success rate in the second or third try, therefore we claim victory when we did something that really had no effect at all. This drives an industry of Hail Marys and success stories that we need to give to ourselves and to our patients because we want them to get pregnant on their second and third transfer. You know, the clinician has to take credit for doing something. Another thing that should be brought up in this paper is the reverse. If all three transfers resulted in 60 to 70% rate, why is that the ceiling? What happened to the other 30 or 40% success rates? So in other words, this paper doesn't say that the endometrium is not important. It says that the reason for a euploid embryo not implanting is not specific to any group of women, or at least not the same in women serially. So as we discussed in a journal club global in early December, this is really going to spark some debate. Is it really simply just the embryo and we should stop looking at the endometrium? Or is it that our tests for the endometrium to date just haven't found the right problem in the uterus? So even Micah, what do you think about this? Well, I have two thoughts. One is I would actually look at this to say that there's a ceiling of maximum efficacy of a single embryo of about 70% and that the other 30% of success that we're not seeing is accounted for by other factors, be it endometrium or maternal host factors and other things that may be going on within the female that are affecting implantation. The second part that I want to stress is this is a significant departure from how SART calculates IVF success rates. In 2016, SART moved away from a model of cherry-picking the best embryo for success and started linking embryo transfer to cycle of origin. And so I think we have to be really careful with these data because how many retrieval cycles did it take to get that single best embryo for transfer? And so if it's three or four retrieval cycles, we're going back to looking at a per transfer likelihood of success instead of a per cycle likelihood of success, which is great for our own purposes, but we need to be sure that that's not being translated in an incorrect fashion when this goes out to the lay press or to patient. Micah, something that came up in the journal club that you attended with me was that despite this ceiling effect, the group that published this paper still thinks the 30 to 40% non-pregnancy rate is genomic and embryo and not the endometrium. What do you think of that? I don't think we know from this data. I do think it's encouraging to patients to be able to say, if you have three euploid transfers and we do them successively, um, as Eve said, that might take a lot of retrieval cycles that you know, you're more than likely to get pregnant. But as you point out, 30 to 40% don't have a live birth with each of those transfers. So is that something innate to the embryo that's genomic or non-genomic to the embryo, or is it something to the endometrium? I still think we do not know. But I do think that the field of recurrent implantation failure is difficult to study because we don't have a diagnosis. If you don't have a diagnosis, how do you study it? 
And I also think it's prone to be manipulated by interventions that we don't know if they work or not because these patients w are willing to try anything. So uh, I think this is a helpful paper. It's overall encouraging, but rather than answering questions, as good research often does, it, it opens up a lot more questions that we, we need to answer. Couldn't agree more. Well, let's move on. There are a couple other papers in the assisted reproduction section. Eve, why don't you take on the next one? This next paper is obstetric and neonatal outcomes after transfer of vitrified warmed blastocysts developing from non-pronuclear, 0PN, and monopronuclear, 1PN zygotes, a retrospective cohort study. The study was performed by Ming Li and others from Peking University. In the IVF laboratory, as, as we all know, normal fertilization is observed by the presence of 2PN zygotes with two polar bodies 16 to 18 hours after insemination. Non-pronuclear zygotes, 0PNs, and monopronuclear zygotes, or 1PNs, arise from abnormal or failed fertilization. Some 0PN or 1PN zygotes can develop into embryos, but the likelihood of pregnancy with the embryos derived from these zygotes is lower than that of normally fertilized zygotes, and embryos that are derived from 2PNs are preferentially selected for transfer. So this was a retrospective study from a single IVF center that examined the obstetric and neonatal outcomes of 0PN and 1PN embryos after vitrified warmed single blastocyst transfer. Pregnancy outcomes were compared to those embryos that were transferred that were derived from 2PN blasts. The authors found that zygotes that did develop to blastocysts had reasonable implantation and live birth rates. The 0PN derived blast had a live birth rate of 35.6 compared to 35.2 from 2PNs, so really virtually the same. The 1PN success rate was only slightly lower at 27.4%. The authors found that the risk of miscarriage was higher in the 1PN group, and there was also some very large for gestational age offspring, but the study was not powered to address this. The authors concluded that embryos derived from 0PN or 1PN zygotes can be considered for transfer. They also conclude that the next day fertilization check is an imperfect science and only represents one snapshot at one point in time. There was a really great reflections piece written by Kevin Duty that I think really analyzes this and looks at it from a different perspective. Kevin looks at these data and says, why do a fertilization check? and perhaps the time has come to abandon this practice. He cites the increasing use of intravaginal culture and overall reassuring outcomes as preliminary proof that perhaps we can change clinical practice. And I thought this was a fantastic perspective that was different than what the authors concluded, but seems to be right on the mark. My gut, Kurt, do you guys transfer 0PNs or 1PM derived embryos? Not routinely, but certainly we, when it's the only possibility, we certainly consider it. So this is certainly going to help us uh, with that thought process. Yeah, we do the same. We'll keep them and watch them if we think the patient's not going to have other normally fertilized embryos that develop and, and then consider them for transfer if, if there's no other option. Okay, thanks, Eve. I'm going to summarize the next article and the last article in assisted reproduction. And this one is from Dr. Sauerbrunn Kultler and Dr. Frischman from the Warren Albert Medical School at, at Brown University. And it's titled, Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology Advertising Guidelines, How Are Our Member Clinics Doing? So historically, a large percentage of IVF clinics have not adhered to the SART guidelines for IVF clinical website advertising. 
some programs have been taking advantage of this powerful Internet, this thing that we've discovered over the last couple of decades, in an attempt to attract patients to increase their volume. I don't think that any of us would debate that published success rates influence consumers when selecting an IVF clinic. So SART has taken an interest in this and has worked hard to harmonize the way pregnancy rates are displayed and thus how we promote our individual clinics. Of note, SART is the only medical organization with advertising oversight, so in a sense, we're policing ourselves. The site guidelines are listed in this paper. I won't go over them for this podcast, but the simplest point was that each clinic through its website should have a direct link to the SART data and use the clinical summary report of that program. Supplemental data is discouraged, and if there is supplemental data, it should be up to date. So what the authors found was is perhaps not surprising. Approximately a third of clinics displayed success rates other than the clinical summary report from SART, and only half the clinics displayed rates that were actually up to date. Interestingly, there didn't seem to be any geographic discrepancy, nor did there be any difference whether the clinic was private or academic. The good news was that few clinics directly compared or complained superiority to other clinics. This was an improvement from the last time this was checked about 15 years ago. In the accompanying reflections by Drs. Jane, Reshef, and Lynn, these authors complemented the necessity and the comprehensiveness of this paper. We're clearly in an age of fake news. If we want to be transparent to our patients, we need to show accurate data. Overall, this paper shows that our field is more compliant than we were years ago, but there is some work to be done. So what do you think, Eve and Micah? Do we need to enforce this a little bit more? I hear there's a, a new opening at the Department of Justice. <laughs> I, I do think it's impressive that we are the only medical field that imposes an advertising policy voluntarily on, on each other. Our data is uniquely prone to manipulation based upon which outcomes you cherry pick, which numerators and denominators you want to start from. And so the fact that SART even tackles this, I think, is great and a compliment to Ellie Reshiff and his committee at SART. But I do think this article highlights that, that we can still do better. So we're doing good, but we can do better. I couldn't agree more. And I think that as a specialty, we hold ourselves to a really high standards. I mean, we don't see oncologists doing national reporting of live, <laughs> of success rates and of mortality rates in the same way that we collect and analyze our own data. So I think this goes hand in hand with the high standards that we hold ourselves to as a field. I agree. So. Let's uh, see if we can look at this a few years later, and maybe we can do even better. But in the meantime, let's talk about the rest of the science in the journal. I think we're at early pregnancy. Yeah, so moving on to early pregnancy, Zur and colleagues from Tel Aviv published their study this month, Conception Rates After Medical Versus Surgical Evacuation of Early Pregnancy. This was an observational cohort of 203 patients, roughly evenly divided into surgical versus medical management of early miscarriage. After both of those management options, the median time to pregnancy was four months, regardless of which intervention was used, and the groups had similar pregnancy rates at both six and 12 months of follow-up. So the authors concluded that the modality of uterine evacuation after early miscarriage does not affect short-term fertility outcomes. Tavakoski and Nini Maki from Finland commented that this study is consistent with what we have already seen in other published meta-analyses, and their opinion was that given the cost-effectiveness of medical treatment over surgical treatment, and the possibility, even if rare, of serious surgical complications, that medical treatment should be considered the first-line intervention, but that surgery is a reasonable choice for patients who might desire that. 
So Kurt, I know one of your research areas of interest is early pregnancy, predicting normal pregnancy, pregnancy loss, ectopic pregnancy. What was your take on, on this paper? Yeah, I was very interested to read this. The question between medical and surgical management hasn't really been addressed, and I'm glad to see that success rates were the same afterwards. I think we've, now we're talking about patient preference and cost effectiveness. I'm not sure I can share data with you that I haven't published yet, but surgical management does seem to decrease the time to wait until your next attempt by about a week. But again, these are patient-specific choices. Okay, I'm going to transition over to endometriosis. This was a, an intriguing paper that I'd like to describe, which is entitled An Insight into Epigenetics of Human Endometriosis Organoids, DNA Methylation Analysis of Hox Genes and Their Cofactors, by Dr. S. Fandiri and his colleagues out of Iran. This paper describes organoids for the study of endometriosis. Organoids, or in vitro culture, are 3D structures and are rapidly developing new technologies to organize cell groups into more in vivo-like structures when normally they could only be studied in vivo. In this paper, organoids were developed from isolated fragments of endometrium as well as endometriosis obtained by laparoscopy. So when you can develop these organoids, it now gives you a background to develop important aspects of endometriosis, such as the Hox genes and methylation or epigenetic imprinting of these Hox genes. Hox genes specify regions of the body plan of an embryo and thus can control cyclical and directional development and thus may talk about how the endometrium is formed. So this study reports the successful creation of organoids that maintain gene expression in both eutopic and ectopic endometrium, and notably they had similar methylation patterns. Thus, differences in patterns, which were found in some of the Hox genes, 28 of 84, can now be interrogated to determine the epigenetic mechanisms that underline endometriosis. Of course, a study like this has some limitations and includes that these cells were derived in the absence of sex steroids. However, these organoids represent another way that we may study and understand endometriosis. This next article focuses on epidemiology. The title is Plasma Glycemic Measures and Fecundability in a Singapore Preconception Cohort Study. And this was written by C. Ling Loy and others from KK Women and Children's Hospital in Singapore. This is a nested study as part of the S. Presto study, which is the Singapore Preconception Study of Long-Term Maternal and Child Outcomes. S. Presto is a prospective preconception cohort study that was designed to examine the long-term environmental effects of preconception exposures occurring before and during early pregnancy on metabolic and mental health. The population included residents of Singapore who are Asian women of Chinese, Malay, or Indian ethnicity ages 18 to 45 attempting to conceive. Patients with diabetes and those on steroids were excluded. Baseline tests included body measurements, oral glucose tolerance tests with a 75-gram glucose load, fasting glucose, two-hour postprandial, and hemoglobin A1c were all measured at baseline. Interestingly, 13.4% of women were found to have dysglycemia, which is a broader term for either prediabetes or diabetes. Dysglycemic women were more likely to be overweight and obese with a higher waist-to-hip ratio and have irregular menses when compared to women with normal glycemia. The main finding of this study was that women with dysglycemia had substantially lower fecundity than normal glycemic women independent of BMI. They used discrete time proportional hazard models that analyzed time to pregnancy, 
as a discrete scale, meaning the number of cycles, to estimate a hazard ratio of fecundability. The association between fasting glucose and fecundity suggests that fecundity decreases with increasing fasting glucose, even within the normal range of sugars. The main limitation of this study, in my mind, is that they don't separate subjects by menstrual cyclicity. So can all of these findings be explained by anovulation, or is there more to this? The reflections for this piece was written by Jorge Chavarro, who stresses that lifestyle interventions, including dietary changes, increased physical activity, and weight management are good for both those diagnosed with diabetes or prediabetes, but also should be implemented in those without diabetes and in all women, even those who are apparently healthy or trying to conceive. So good, solid, sound evidence to improve your diet and exercise more as somebody is trying to conceive. Great. Thank you, Eve. So uh, now we're moving on to the fertility preservation section of the January journal where we have two articles. Uh, we know that for cervical cancer that's less than two centimeters in size, uh, fertility sparing procedures are an option. You can use neoadjuvant chemotherapy and cold knife cone instead of a radical hysterectomy or radical trachelectomy. But it's unclear if this can also be offered to women with early stage tumors that are over two centimeters in size. DiVincenzo and colleagues from Italy investigated this in the study this month, neoadjuvant chemotherapy followed by coninization of stage 1B2 to 2A1 cervical cancer larger than two centimeters, a pilot study. This is a prospective investigational study of 13 patients with cervical cancer. They received three cycles of cisplatin and paclitaxel followed by cold knife cone. Of those 13 patients, six did not need any further interventions, four did need an additional LEAP procedure, and three ended up needing a further radical surgery, either radical hysterectomy or radical trachelectomy. Two patients had cancer recurrences, unfortunately one of whom ended up dying from her disease. Three of the patients tried to get pregnant, two of whom were successful, and they both had live births that were uh, relatively near term. The authors conclude that this pilot study suggests a feasible approach to fertility sparing surgery with similar oncologic outcomes when compared to radical uh, surgeries. The commentary was from Marie Alexandre and Guilibert Esteles from Valencia, Spain, and they agree with the authors that this uh, offers a potential new fertility sparing treatment for patients who have early stage cancers that are over two centimeters in size, but they do caution that this is only pilot data and, and really we need larger randomized studies before we can offer this as a standard of care for patients with these cancers who want to try to preserve their fertility. Kurt, I believe you have the second fertility preservation article this month. I do, um, and uh, this one's about um, ovarian cancer. So oncofertility is a term coined by Teresa Woodruff and her group more than a decade ago and is well known to many who practice reproductive endocrinology, but unfortunately not always known to women diagnosed with cancer in their reproductive years. So for those who have a treatable cancer, especially something like ovarian cancer, subsequent fertility is a very important aspect of their care. In this study, reproductive and obstetrical outcomes with overall survival of fertility-aged women treated with fertility-sparing surgery from borderline ovarian tumors in Sweden, a prospective nationwide study by Drs. Johansson and Rodriguez-Walberg, evaluates 
all women with reproductive age treated in Sweden who underwent fertility sparing surgery from 2008 to 2015, clearly they have the advantage of a national registry. This is a very comprehensive and interesting study that has a number of take home messages. First of all, the survival rate for this cohort was more than 99%. That's terrific. Approximately three quarters of the cohort underwent fertility sparing surgery and the fertility after this treatment was surprisingly good with 50 women giving birth to 72 children. Of those births, only 8% were preterm and only 9% of those women underwent ART treatment, suggesting that there really is natural fertility after borderline ovarian cancer. So surgeries such as unilateral salping, ophorectomy or cystectomy truly are viable options. It also appears that based on this data, ovarian stimulation in women with borderline ovarian tumor is relatively safe and oocyte retrieval is possible either before the surgery or after the treatment for the cancer. It also introduced, at least to me, a novel concept. If you think that the risk of spillage of malignant cells is too high, an egg retrieval can be performed ex vivo at the time of cancer surgery and therefore freezing all mature oocytes for future use. Well, of course, I would think natural conception after treatment for borderline cancer is preferable, but clearly fertility preservation is a strategy and treatment can be considered for those who did not consider these options prior to surgery. So this is a well done study, but nevertheless, large prospective studies can further clarify and optimize the approaches for this kind of specific population. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'm trying to picture how you would do an ex vivo egg retrieval. <laughs> The next article is transitioning to the genetics section of the journal. It's titled Telomere Aberrations, Including Telomere Loss, Doublets, and Extreme Shortening are Increased in Infertility Patients. I thought this paper was really thought-provoking. The objective was to test the hypothesis that telomere shortening or telomere loss is a risk factor for infertility. Telomeres are repeated DNA sequences at the end of chromosomes and they play a fundamental role in preserving genome stability and integrity. Telomere length has been proposed as a biomarker for biological age and a risk factor for age-related diseases and cancer. Telomere length may be predictive of life expectancy. This was a retrospective study that tested 50 infertility patients. 25 patients had known karyotype abnormalities, and 25 had normal chromosomes, and they compared this to 150 healthy donors matched for age as control. Of note, it was not clear to me in reading this article whether these were 150 egg donors or what they characterize as a donor and what the fertility history of these patients were. They analyzed the telomeres in two ways. They examined telomere length and more specifically shortening and then telomere aberrations like loss, deletions, and doublets. The main finding of this study was that telomere shortening and telomere aberrations were the most common cytogenetic characteristics of patients with infertility when compared to healthy donor population. The findings were more pronounced in patients with known structural aberrations. The reflections piece for this was written by Ramya Sethern from Wayne State with senior author Liz Puszczak who cautioned that the true value of the manuscript is in shedding light on telomere biology, but there's an overall lack of understanding of the complexity of telomeres. Furthermore, the study was carried out in lymphocytes, which are somatic cells, and it is unclear how this may translate to germ cells. 
My main criticism of the study was the lack of information on study subjects. Were they examining telomeres in females when the primary etiology of infertility was male factor or vice versa? What were the different etiologies of infertility? Infertility is not a one-size-fits-all. Who were the donors in this population? In my mind, there were more questions unanswered than answered, but I thought the study, as I said before, was really thought-provoking. I'm envisioning direct-to-consumer telomere length testing kits that will be marketing predict your life expectancy or used as a home assessment kit prospectively for infertility risk. I think this is one area of medicine and fertility that we can watch really closely. So moving from genetics to gynecology, there's a group in Italy that recently developed an index to screen for uterine sarcomas based upon lactate dehydrogenase in the serum. And it's called the UMG index based upon the uh, medical center from which they come. So Spivak and colleagues from the University of Rochester sought to confirm that this index actually has a good sensitivity and specificity uh, for detecting uterine sarcomas in their study specificity of the lactate dehydrogenase isoenzyme index as a preoperative screen for uterine sarcoma before myomectomy. They evaluated 179 patients who were undergoing myomectomy and also had an LDH drawn. 16 of these 179 had an elevated index and the other 163 had a normal index. There were no cases of uterine sarcoma that occurred in this study uh, in all 179, whether it was elevated or not elevated, which gave the UMG index a specificity of 91% to exclude sarcoma. But given that there were no cases, they could not calculate a sensitivity. Now, this was done in a U.S. population as opposed to Italy, where the initial study was done. And they did have more patients with elevated BMI, and they did find that elevated BMI itself was likely to give you an elevated LDH uh, index or UMG index. The authors concluded that this index may indeed be a useful surgical screening tool prior to myomectomy to try to rule out or rule in the risk of uterine sarcoma. Cohen and Stewart from the Mayo Clinic have a commentary that's aptly titled, Finding the Needle in the Haystack. Given that sarcoma may occur in as few as one in 5,000 women undergoing myomectomy, screening tests with the level of sensitivity and specificity that this UMG index have will never have a positive predictive value that's over 3% because the disease itself is just so rare. So they conclude that these data are not robust enough to recommend routine clinical use of this biomarker. So from a statistical standpoint, it does make me wonder uh, how we can evaluate a test that's looking for a disease that's as rare as this unless we have just a, a very, very large sample size. You're right, Micah, but having said that, it's nice that we publish negative literature sometimes to show that the test isn't as good as often proposed. Thank you, Micah. I'm going to move on to the infertility section, and I'm going to start off with a trio of articles regarding an international consensus about studying human reproduction. These three articles are concomitantly published in Fertility and Serility as well as Human Reproduction. First author for all three of these articles is Dr. Duffy with senior author Cindy Farquhar. These articles are published by a consortium of qualified experts around the world and broken into three parts, the top 10 research priorities, developing a core outcome set for future infertility research, and standardizing definitions and reporting guidelines for the infertility core outcome set. 
the authors that put these together are broken into two groups. One is called the Core Outcomes for Research and Infertility Trial Initiatives, or the COMMIT Initiative. These publications represent an international multidisciplinary group with well-laid-out organization and priorities. Spoiler alert here, you can look at the top 10 research priorities on your own, but number one in female infertility is implantation failure. So for those who want to perform impactful large-scale research in our field or want to be able to read it with an eye towards quality, these three papers should be of particular interest. There certainly should be no debate about a minimum data set or core outcomes and a consensus for gathering and presenting data. This should be important to all of us. So congratulations for this hard work, for the publication of this important work by a large panel of experts. I really think it'll help us, but clearly I appreciate the hurting of the cats. I think those sound like really comprehensive papers and we'll definitely go back and read them at a later time. The next study I'm gonna talk about is endometrial thickness following ovarian stimulation with gonadotropin, clomiphene, or letrozole for unexplained infertility in association with treatment outcomes. The study was done by Alex Kawas from UCSD with reproductive partners and senior author Carl Hansen from the University of Oklahoma for the NICHD Reproductive Medicine Network. This was a secondary analysis of the multi-center assessment of multiple intrauterine gestations from ovarian stimulation trial, or the AMIGOS trial. The original data from the AMIGOS trial consisted of 900 study participants randomized to clomid, letrozole, or gonadotropin as ovulation induction therapies for unexplained infertility to examine the risk of multiple gestations. The results of the AMIGOS trial showed that oral medications resulted in a lower live birth rate, but also a lower multiple pregnancy rate. This study focuses on examining the effective treatment on endometrial thickness as it relates to outcome in these groups. Overall, the live birth rate was highest when the endometrial thickness was in the 13 to 15 millimeter range. The greatest endometrial thickness was achieved in the gonadotropin group and the lowest in the clomiphene group. But interestingly, the differences in endometrial thickness between clomid and letrozole were not statistically significant. They were 8.9 versus 9.5 millimeters. The main findings of this study were as follows. One, live births increased with increasing endometrial thickness. Two, this was actually in concert with the mode of treatment. Live births were highest in the gonadotropin group. Therefore, endometrial thickness was not an independent determinant of live birth rate. This trend towards higher live birth rate with increased thickness became non-significant when adjusted for treatment group. And three, the other major takeaway point was that there were live births, even in the thinnest endometrial thickness category, of less than five millimeters. There was a reflection piece written by Sarah Mustafa, Audrey Garneau, and Linnea Goodman from UNC Chapel Hill. They stressed that though live birth rates were lower in the thinner endometrial development group, this should not be a criteria for cancellation. They also stressed that dedicated study to the endometrial effects of different treatment types are necessary and whether treatment crossover affects treatment outcomes. So I think this is really interesting to have this paper in the same journal as uh, the IVF paper that highlighted earlier. And granted, we're comparing IVF to IUI, but I think it really sparks the debate of what is the role of the endometrium in implantation. Is it seed versus soil? Is it the seed, meaning the embryo, or is it the soil or the endometrium into which that seed is implanted? And I think the jury is still out.
Great. Thank you, Eve. It was nice to see uh, another good paper from the RMN and the, the Crest Network. And uh, it did make me wonder because the increasing live birth was really just seen in the gonadotropin arm. And we know that the Amigos trial had very high rates of twins and triplets in that arm. And so is it really just capturing that those people were more likely to get pregnant because they had a, a lot more follicles that developed as opposed to an actual effect of, of the endometrium? So moving on to talking about BMI in IUI cycles, why not and colleagues from the University of Iowa explored body mass index and infertility treatments in their study titled, The Effect of Body Mass Index on Intrauterine Insemination Cycle Success. This was a retrospective cohort of 1,300 patients undergoing more than 3,200 IUI cycles. They found that live birth was equally as likely in women with a BMI that was in the normal range, 18 to 25, as compared to those that were 25 to 30 and those who were greater than 30. The odds ratios were 0.99 and 1.02 respectively, very closely approaching the null. The authors concluded that BMI is not associated with the decreased odds of live birth in IUI cycles. Jennifer Eaton from Brown University wrote the commentary on this article, and she agreed with the author's conclusions. But she also notes that overweight and obesity are associated with maternal and neonatal morbidity risks. So she says that, quote, given these competing risk factors, patient counseling should be individualized with consideration of age, BMI, and other risk factors for obstetric complications. But I do think that overall these data are reassuring that BMI, increasing BMI, is not associated with reduced success in patients undergoing ovulation induction IUI cycles. Yeah, one of the more difficult things that we face in practice is telling a woman she needs to lose weight prior to conceiving. It's a very difficult conversation, and I'm not sure it actually improves the success rate. So there's some good information here. Perhaps we should just treat women as they are as opposed to prolonging the process. Well, I'm going to go on to the next paper, which peripherally is also related to BMI. This is a patient-specific model combining AMH and body mass index as a predictor of PCOS and other oligoovulatory disorders. This paper is from first author Vagios and senior author Souter from the Massachusetts General Hospital Fertility Center. So there's been a debate about the diagnosis of women with polycystic ovary syndrome for decades. Many advocate the Rotterdam classification, while others espouse the virtues of the NIH classification. The criticisms of the Rotterdam classification is that young women who are anovulatory can be classified with PCOS perhaps a little bit too easily. The criticisms of the NIH criteria is that it only looks at one phenotype of PCOS, those with metabolic and androgenic abnormalities. So this paper will add to the debate regarding the optimal and pragmatic diagnosis of PCOS, as the authors suggest that women with PCOS and infertility can be classified according to their AMH levels and their BMI. The study looked at a large series of women undergoing IUI at Mass General Hospital and compares AMH and BMI in women ultimately diagnosed with PCOS, other ovulatory disorders, or infertility for other reasons. This is a neat methodologic study attempting to fit women into categories and looking at AMH and BMI as potential classifiers using logistic regression and receiver operator curves. The findings were interesting, but I'm not sure they are clinically relevant yet. The findings confirm that AMA is certainly associated with PCOS and higher levels compared to those with other reasons of anovulation and lowest AMH levels in those with regular or non-anovulatory infertility. Additionally, there's a clear reverse association with AMH and BMI. For example, in this series, classification of PCOS in this model 
used a higher AMH for lean women, approximately seven and a half, and a lower classification for AMH for women with a high BMI at approximately 4.0. Now, the authors claim that this model might help in predicting the probability that a woman you're treating either has PCOS, anovulation, or some other cause of infertility, thus allowing personalization of care. However, as described by Thomas Strawitsky in the accompanying reflection, while this paper contributes to the literature by quantitating these associations, there is such a wide variety in the presentation of women with PCOS that it prevents this model from any kind of definitive diagnosis, at least for today. As I stated, it's a pretty neat methodologic paper, but unfortunately not ready to add AMH and BMI as cutoffs as definitive criteria for ruling in or ruling out PCOS. So the debate goes on. This next paper looks at the functional role of long non-coding RNA, XIST, which I'm not sure how to pronounce, but we're going to call it XIST, in lyomyoma pathogenesis with authors Sai Jer Chang with senior author Omid Karam from UCLA. The study reports on the expression, regulation, and molecular mechanisms of long non-coding RNA in the development and progression of fibroids. The authors explore the role of long non-coding RNA X inactive specific transcript EXIST. And EXIST is on the X chromosome in mammals and it acts as a major effector of the X inactivation process. The study addresses the expression, regulation, and molecular mechanism of EXIST in the development and progression of fibroids. They use knockdown models as well as overexpression models to delineate the downstream effects on microRNAs. They found that fibroids expressed more excess as compared with matched myometrium. This led to decreased expression of certain microRNAs and then upregulation of target collagen and fibronectin genes. There was a really nice reflections piece to accompany this manuscript written by Pasquapina Carmela and Felice Petralia from Florence, who conclude that these results support the importance of epigenetic mechanisms in fibroid formation and that this is an opportunity to explore the potential for non-coding RNA as a new therapeutic approach. Well, it brings us to the end of another Fertility and Cerulean On Air podcast, but we're starting a new year. So I would love for you, those that are listening to us, to give us some feedback, let us know how you like this podcast, and of course, share it with your friends. I have received some comments from people. Enrique Schusterman, I would like to call out, has been listening to our podcast, and if we can teach him something, I'm sure we can teach everybody something. Has anybody else heard comments from anybody? Eduardo Harrison reached out to say that he was really enjoying the podcast. And Helen Kim, one of my partners, told me it was a really great way to unwind at the end of a long day as she is commuting home. We also heard from Serena Chen on Twitter this month saying it was a great podcast. She loves it. And Kurt, she encouraged you to get into the 20th century and get a Twitter handle or the 21st century, I guess that would be. <laughs> she's, she's probably right. And finally, I've warned my fellows that if they don't listen to it, then they're in trouble. So I hope that other fellows can uh, do this as well, because it really is a nice summary of the journal. All right, everyone. Happy, uh, happy holidays. And as I've been saying, let's bring on 2021. Great working with you for the next episode. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air. Brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Jeffrey Hayes.
This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.